so what's what's your book about? Well, so, you know, one of the things that, as somebody who really cares about the natural world and wants to see it looked after better into the future, one of the things that worries me is that people are getting turned off by too much doom and gloom, you know, that they might be getting sick of hearing about climate change or Mm -hmm. biodiversity loss. And, you know, everyone knows that that can actually have a negative effect. People stop caring about it, then you're really in trouble. So personally, and I think it's just, maybe it's just my personality, but I think also it's effective, is trying to find more positive stories. So this is why I really like working on marine protected areas, for example, because you're talking about recovery, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're saying, look, this place, it was just a bare patch of gravel, and now, look, it's covered in all this amazing life. Or, you know, I mentioned before about how amazing um, British seas are, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that, that, you know, I've been all all over the world and I've seen this amazing stuff, but I can see stuff that's just as good, you know, off the west coast of Scotland or down off Dorset or whatever, um, it's things and, like rewilding are doing so well at the moment because people get to see visible environmental change. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think spreading those positive messages, but also the big thing is encouraging people to get out there in the in the wild. Doesn't You don't have to go under the water if you don't want to, mm-hmm. but that's a great step if you can. Sure. But just getting down to the shore, you know, walking on the beach, going to see seals or bird life or whatever it is hey just a rock pool i'm never happier pool. than in a rock pool absolutely so you know. much of my childhood was spent either finding little crabs and little fish or pretending i had to my yeah. parents oh my god did you see that is there a starfish yeah, you just missed it <laughs> uh but no that's ab- absolutely and i think it's the detail that's often the the most fascinating if you just stop you slow down you know you just watch a crab mm-hmm. you know and it's really cool yeah. and uh, that's also will not only help you sort of appreciate the natural world and hopefully care and look after a bit better, but it's, it's undoubtedly good for your mental health as well, you know, just to sort of appreciate the little things, switch off from some of the stresses in your everyday life. You know, it's a win-win scenario. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. Or his branches, the ivy, her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From nature writers sharing stories to fishermen catching dories, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. This week, I've come to the University of York, to the Heslington campus, which hosts a lake and wetlands area at its very heart. But as well as providing a home to swans, grebes, moorhens, coots, herons, and no doubt many species of fish, it also hosts a world-class department for environmental sciences, and I've come here to talk to Dr Bryce Stewart. Bryce is a marine ecologist and fisheries biologist whose work has ranged from temperate estuaries to tropical coral reefs and deep seas. He has contributed to international discussions on fisheries and marine conservation at the highest of levels and has even appeared on Springwatch. Bryce, hello and welcome to Trees Hi, thank you very much. Great to be here. I think that's the longest introduction I've done. I sort of went off on a, on a, a fowl and birds sort of... Yeah, interesting. I'll have to get out and look at the bird life a bit more. Do you ever get into the lake and have a look at what the fish are doing? I've never there? been in there. To be honest, uh, there's a few too many um, wildfowl and their droppings make the water kind oh, of okay. unsafe. So, yeah, well, you're not encouraged to go in the water. But it's very nice to be surrounded by water. Actually... 
my office has a lake view, which I specifically okay. said, as a marine biologist, I needed to have. <laughs> so, yeah. And the water slide that goes from the window all the way down. Oh, if there. only, if only. <laughs> we'll have to get them to cough up the money for that. It's odd. I was just saying to you off, off microphone, it's odd being back on a campus. Like, I feel like I've got coursework due in or I'm going to be held accountable for something. Yeah, I mean, I still feel like that, you know, graduated, gosh, you know, 25 years ago. But yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm the one who should be. How long have you been here now? Uh, so at the University of York, I've been here almost 12 years. Okay. Um, I'm originally Australian, so I've been in the UK altogether about 20 years. Okay. So as a marine biologist, you're like 50 miles from the sea. Yeah, Is sure. Is that useful? <laughs> uh, I guess it... Not ideal. Like, it would obviously be best to be actually right on the sea. And to be honest, most of the other jobs, in fact, all the other jobs I've I've been based on Mm. or very near the ocean. But 50 miles is not that far. It's, you know, just over an hour. I guess if you're Australian, it's not For me, you know, it's just like going to the shops. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, no, it's really not that far. So I do do field work directly on the coast here at Flamborough Head, which is a very beautiful place okay. and it's um very interesting very unique scientifically what are you doing there so there there's what's called a no-take zone so it's one of only four in the country where you're not allowed to fish at all uh-huh. it's very small but it's obviously you know interesting because it's one of a few um and so what we've been doing there is almost for 10 years now we've been monitoring the marine life um in the no-take protected zone and, and outside sure did you set it up as part of your role here, or was it there and so, existed before? Yeah, I didn't set it up personally, but um, it actually sort of came in place um, on the back of the local management authority and uh, and various environmental groups and, and fishermen kind of got together and had it implemented. So is it a marine protected area, or is it just a no-take zone? Is there a difference between the two? So, there are, so a marine protected area is a broader term that refers to any marine area that has some level of protection. So that might not actually be very much. Sometimes marine protected areas don't mean a lot. So maybe they just stop one type of fishing, but they allow everything else. So a no-take zone or is otherwise called a marine reserve or a highly protected marine reserve. So that's the highest level of protection. So it means you're not allowed to take anything. anything Yeah. Are you allowed to scuba dive in it and go and see what's going on underneath the waves or do you have to do remote monitoring and all that kind of so, thing? So, yeah, generally, uh, certainly all the, um, well, the four no-take zones in the UK, yes, you're allowed to scuba dive in them. You're allowed to go into them. You're just sure. not allowed to take anything. Okay. There are a few places in the world where you're not even allowed to go, but they're quite unusual, certainly. I don't think there's any other than military sort of okay. properties in this yeah, country. Places where they're testing bombs and all that. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay. So basically what we've mainly focused on at Flamborough Head is uh, the intertidal zone. So this is the place that people would be familiar with. As kids, you go rock pooling and, uh, you know, you discover crabs and periwinkles and all sorts of seaweed and stuff. And so we've been interested in how that's being affected by, you know, this high level of protection. Mm -hmm. To be honest, that that particular area is is kind of interesting, but it hasn't shown as dramatic effects as other places. Okay. So I'm lucky enough to not only study this one, but also one up on the Isle of Arran. So this is called the Lamlash Bay no-take zone up on the west coast of Scotland. And that's a whole different story because that area was very heavily fished before it was protected. Fished for what, particularly? So it was fished a lot for for scallops. So it was dredged for scallops, um, which is, can be quite a damaging method where you basically 
towing these heavy dredges along the seabed. They're like giant rakes, basically. Exactly. So these these scallop dredges uh, have a series of teeth on the front, and they rake the seabed, and the scallops are sort of knocked up into a net that follows behind. So they cause a lot of physical disturbance to the seabed, and they also obviously can, you know, anything that's growing on the seabed can be sort of dislodged and damaged. Destroys seagrasses and anything else. Yeah, if it went over seagrass, um, it would definitely be pretty terrible. I read an article which said that the one of the arguments for that kind of dredging said that it was only as bad as a bad sort of storm would be and that the damage would repair itself pretty quickly. I'm presuming that that was someone with an agenda saying something completely different. Yeah, I mean, I do come across that argument fairly often. Mm. All I can say in response is that I've... Uh, again, in another area of the Isle of Man, we, we've and, and the Isle of Arran, we've studied the recovery of these areas, and you know, they are subject to big winter storms. And yes, a winter storm has a bit of an effect, but it's nothing compared to constant disturbance that's so caused how, by fish. By, how's the Isle of Arran looking now, considering it's been left alone? But yeah, so the Isle of Arran is um, uh, has now been protected for over 10 years. That that one bay, and now there's a bigger sort of marine protected area that allows some fishing in it. Uh, and we literally have just come back from doing the surveys with my students. And it's, it's pretty amazing, to be honest. So we've seen big increases in just general biodiversity. So everything that's living on the seabed... Um, it, the whole place is transformed. But in terms of the things that uh, were targeted by by fishermen, we've seen uh, over that sort of 10-year time period, and we've been monitoring it here at York, we've been involved in that monitoring almost the whole time, sure. um, we've seen now a sort of four- to five-fold increase in the number of scallops per unit area, similar for lobsters, um, and they're the two main commercial species. And they're not just much more abundant, but they're much bigger. Okay. So because they're not being caught, they're they get growing. They longer. Exactly. They're growing up to these big sizes. And for reproduction, this is really important because there's an exponential sort of relationship between size and reproductive output. So if you, you know, the lobster, maybe it grows 10 centimetres uh, or t- sorry, one or two centimeters bigger, mm-hmm. it might suddenly be producing two or three times as many eggs. Okay. Um, and so that's really important for sort of reseeding all the surrounding areas. And I guess there's huge spillover into areas where they can be farmed. Yeah, imagine. exactly, where they can be fished. So this is the thing. Um, lobsters, it's uh, in two ways because they're quite mobile. So they do have their home sort of territories, but we've tagged quite a lot of them and they do move backwards and forwards, sometimes right around the island, bizarrely, which which took us by surprise. They're just going for a walk all the yeah, way around the Yeah, they just the go for a walk, like, you know, go on a gap year or something. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but, it, but they do this occasionally. Um, do so you track them or just... We, we put tags in them. They okay. look like... Um, they're actually called spaghetti tags. Okay. So they're a bit... They, they use the system that you use to put clothes tags on. Oh, so the, the, the punchy little plastic. punchy yeah, gun, okay. yeah. Um, and they just have a number on them, a code and a colour and my phone number. And, um, <laughs> if found, please call Brad. Yeah, yeah, basically. And so University of York. I've, you know, I've t- I know the fishermen up there now, the lobster fishermen, and they'll keep these things and they'll record where they caught them. So they let me know, which is pretty cool. So you've got that movement on the one hand, but you've also got this reproductive benefit. So scallops and lobsters and almost all marine species have what's called a, a larval phase when mm. they're um, young. So 
you know, the eggs are fertilized, they then will hatch and they'll just go up into the water column. They can swim a little bit, but mostly they're drifting around at the whim of the currents. Does that mean they're technically nekton? Uh, I was trying to explain the difference between nekton and plankton to... to Yeah, no, you'd call them plankton because they do have some... They've got a bit of mobility. They can certainly move up and down and that can change how they're distributed. But they, um, yeah, they definitely can move around a little bit, but most the most important thing is that they're dispersed fairly widely from uh-huh. where they start off. And most things, like a scallop has about a three-week period in the plankton. Um, and, you, you know, you think of it if it's traveling several kilometers a day sometimes, that's a long way. Sure. And so what this means is even when you only have small protected areas, if they're full of all these animals close together which are very reproductively active, which mm. is what you see. You get really high fertilization rates, lots of eggs coming out, lots of larvae, and then that spreads out around... across everywhere. Exactly, around the surrounding areas. So you describe yourself on Twitter as someone who has an unnatural obsession with scallops. <laughs> I've been doing my research. Now, now, so why scallops? What is it about them? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, so when I first came to the UK 20 years ago, my initial job was on on scallops. Mm-hmm. And really, I've stayed doing research on them ever since. Okay. At that time, scallops were a sort of important fishery, but not, you know, not that important to the UK. Mm-hmm. Now they are the most valuable fishery in England, which takes a lot of people by I surprise. I did not know that. Yeah, and um, third most in the UK overall. So very, very valuable. That's after salmon, I would imagine. Uh, well, salmon's mostly farmed. So you've got okay. the most valuable is mackerel, okay. um, and then it tends to be um, langoustine or you know, kind of. prawns, whatever sure. you want to call them. Okay. Uh, yeah, net frops, prawns, and then scallops. So very valuable. Hmm. For me... Really interesting because they sort of epitomize this balance that we're all trying to find as, I guess, marine biologists, conservationists, which is you've got a resource which you know is valuable, but you've got a method that's generally used to to extract them, which is scallop dredging, which mm-hmm. is quite damaging. So how do you find the balance, you know? I want the scallop fishery to prosper. You know, I'm, I'm, I love seafood myself. Sure. I love to eat scallops as well. They're the best um, fish. You know, <laughs> they just are. one of the best pieces of advice I ever had from my uh, one of my early university tutors, he said, if you're going to be a marine biologist, he said, choose a study species that's nice to eat <laughs> and, a, and a study site that you'd want to go to on holiday. And I've, I've pretty much... <laughs> you nailed that one down. Followed that one. Not always. Um yeah, sometimes I go on field trips to Grimsby where I probably <laughs> not want to go on holiday, but hey. Uh, but yeah, so scallops are really interesting and in, you know, trying to strike that balance because you know they're important. You want the fishery to do well, but you also don't want to see some of this collateral damage mm-hmm. that's, that's occurring. And so the thing that attracted me to working on marine protected areas and particularly these sort of level, these areas with high protection is you can have a network of those. They may only take up 10% of the total area. But if you put them in the right places in terms of that larval distribution, but also so that they protect the more fragile habitats, mm-hmm. you know, you only need to protect some of the area, but you actually can increase the overall 
productivity. It's a bit like investing wisely, you know. Yeah, you, you could just throw your money at the, at the stock exchange and hope for the best. But if you know what you're doing and you invest in the right places, then you, you, you really do well. So this sort of brings me on to one of my bigger questions, which is do you find that your uh, information as a scientist is taken on by the fishing community? Or are you at odds with each other? Like, if you can both benefit yeah. from this information, why or are people not listening? I think there's a, so. An answer to your question, a bit of both. So I've, you know, I've certainly worked hard to build good relationships with fishermen. I've worked with fishermen a lot, still do. But it's fair to say, also, some fishermen do not like what I have to say. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you looked on Twitter, you have seen some criticism as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, disbelief in some of our findings. I think there's two reasons for that. One is, you know, when somebody comes up with new ideas, that means change. Not everybody likes change. Mm-hmm. But also, and possibly they think it, it, that, you know, I'm trying to point the finger of blame at them as well and say, you messed up, you know, you need to do things differently. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to do that. You know, we all... We all make mistakes. mistakes. We we all learn. That's the whole point of life. And what was the way of doing something in the past is that we learn is not necessarily the way to do the future. Um, So you've got that, but you've also got the fact that with something like a marine protected area, it does require a bit of a leap leap of faith. So you're telling somebody, okay, look, you've got to sacrifice 10% of your fishing ground now, but Mm -hmm. in three or four years you're going to be catching more fish. And that's, you know, you have to believe that. And, And I think... It's sometimes difficult for people, you know, and and I can understand if somebody said to me, I'll take a wage cut for the next few years, but you'll get more down the line in the future. You know, you it depends be... if you want a fast car now as opposed to in five yeah, years. Yeah, you want to be pretty sure about it. So, yeah, well, um, one of the things I was obviously reading about was recent the scallop wars between the French fishermen and yeah. the English fishermen and the French as I understand it, had implemented a policy that they had smaller boats. There was a little less dredging in certain mm. areas. But English boats were still fishing in a slightly larger scale in those areas. And so yeah. just because one country, one nation state had taken on board one environmental policy doesn't mean that the other did. I mean, mm. and not to say that the French were better than the Brits, because I'm sure there are other forms of fishing that mm. were replicated in the reverse way for the Brits. Against sure. The yeah, yeah. It's not it's not universal one direction, but that's an it's a perfect case study. So. Back in uh, sort of about 2003 or four, around then anyway, the French fishery was not doing so well. Mm-hmm. And so they decided to implement a whole series of changes. And, and one of the things was to basically adapt their gear so they didn't catch the scallops till they were bigger, so to allow them to breed more before mm-hmm. they caught them. And then they also really restricted the amount of time every day that they could fish. And so they did all this, and suddenly the stocks started to come back. And... Um, I remember I'm, I'm friends with a couple of the French scientists and, mm-hmm. I, and they were showing me these graphs of these, you know, rapidly increasing um, catch rates. And I, and I said, how, you know, what's the secret? And he said, he said, how do you say in English, no pain, no gain? He said it was very difficult to get this through the fishing community at the mm-hmm. time, these new regulations. And they did go through pain. You know, they, they had reduced catches for a series of time. But now they're reaping the benefits. Literally. Um, yeah. And, and and their fisheries, even just last year, they're at record levels. So there's not many fisheries in the world where, you know, in this day and age, they're at the highest they've ever been. Uh-huh. In, in sort of rec- They have records back to the 60s. 
and this is the best they've ever seen. So then when the British boats come in using much bigger, more powerful boats who which travel all over the UK and Europe and so you know, and they're like, well... Like nomadic kind Yeah, of. they're nomadic boats. And, and so you can understand the tension. You know, they're like, well, you've sort of just swanning in here and taking all the benefits of, of our sacrifices. Now, fortunately, that situation seems to have been sort of resolved for the moment. For the moment. Um, but it does highlight the difficulties of... Of, trying to implement uh, policies that benefit everybody. Exactly, yeah. And and those tensions between different sectors of the fishing industry are quite common. They're, you know, the tensions are not just between, say, conservationists and fishermen or biologists and fishermen. They're mm. often within the fishing industry as well, okay. different groups. All right, well, let's let's talk about why you like fish. So where, where were you brought up? Where was home? So, yeah, so I was brought up in Australia um, in Melbourne. I was born in Melbourne. And uh, I guess like a lot of Aussies, you know, summer beach holidays was what it was all about. Mm-hmm. I loved them so much that, um, and I can I can still remember this, four or five years old, I used to cry on the way home. <laughs> like, it was like I just wanted to live at the beach. And this is a true story. I said to my dad on, on the way home from one of these trips, I said, Dad, Dad, I just want to be a professional holiday man when I grow up. <laughs> And he said, why, why is that, Bryce? And, he's, and I was like, well, you know, I just love the beach and the sea and the fish. And he said, mm, professional holiday man is probably not a, a career option. Sounds pretty good, though. I think you've got the right cool, agenda. Yeah, but he said, but you could be a marine biologist, right? And, and I was maybe five. And I said, OK, that's what I want to be. And that was it. I was fixed then, you know. Jacques that's Coup- bonkers. Yeah, yeah, Jacques Cousteau was around, I can remember, you know, over the ensuing years. But what then really cemented it was when I was eight years old, my um, family decided they needed some adventure in their lives. So they Mm. moved to Papua New Guinea. And then, so I then lived from um, eight years old to 17 in Papua New Guinea um, in a town called Ley on the north coast. And we had beautiful coral reefs just down the coast. Mum and dad bought a boat. We all learned to scuba dive. What did they do? What was their job? My dad's a, a lecturer as well, actually in chemistry. Okay. Um, my mum's a school teacher. So, yeah, they just got jobs up there. Um, and uh, we had this amazing life in Papua New Guinea. And, yeah, I mean, that you know, you could not help but fall in love with the ocean and the wonders of the ocean there. I do mean, you speak the local language? Yeah, yeah, I can still speak um, a tokpisan, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, do you want to do the rest of the interview in <laughs> top person? I could say, Mipalai got good savi lang all get to something is tap long solwara, which actually means basically I'm a marine biologist. Okay. So you'll have to take my word I for it. I will. I, I hope that if we, anyone in Papua New Guinea listens to this, they yeah, feel they'll feel massively like, yes. offended. That's not what he said, mate. That's not what he said. Yeah. Um, so what's what's it like? Um, I guess, to, okay, first question. What's the best beach to go to as a kid in Melbourne? Oh, wow. Um, that's a big question. I really liked, from Melbourne, the back beaches, so Portsea and Sorrento back beaches. Mm-hmm. They are surf beaches. They're pretty wild, but also you've got, you know, these amazing rock formations, so you could explore all the rock pools. And mm. uh, and then it's a pretty cool scene down there. Like now I'm a bit older, obviously there's lots of, uh, 
you know, there's nice beach bars and shops and everything I, else. I've never eaten better food than I've eaten in Melbourne. Right, and, yeah. And then I, I got taken down and got shown some penguins down on oh, yeah, Kildare. Oh, Phil, yeah, Phillip Island it would have been, yeah, yeah probably. Um, and it was just, I, I couldn't quite understand how you could have surfing, great food, a bizarre natural wildlife population and everyone smiling all the time. I thought life was supposed to be harder than that. But I, I fell in love with Melbourne. Well, yeah, the reason my daughter is, um, is moving to Australia this weekend is when we were there a few years ago, she just said to me, Dad, it's so much better here. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we live here? Yeah. You know, I was going, well, Becky, you're on holiday. You know, uh, it's not always like this. But mm, it kind of is. Anyway, <laughs> she, yeah, she's moving there. So so, um, so Papua New Guinea from the age of eight. Yep. Um, what can you remember? Do you remember swimming in the seas? Do you remember particularly species? Like what were the... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, right from the start, we, uh, in fact, before we went, we got snorkeling gear for Christmas just mm. a month or so before we went. And I still remember that. The first snorkel was in Australia, but I can still remember that. And then obviously going up to New Guinea and the coral reefs, which in those days, you know, we're talking back in the late 70s, okay. coral bleaching was not a thing, you know, low population density in New Guinea. So the reefs were pristine mm-hmm. and the water was beautifully clear. And, you know, corals, just incredible. Like just all the variety and amazing fish life mm. and coral cover and everything else. Have you been, have you dived back since? I haven't been back to Papua New Guinea since, no, not since the 80s. Hope to go back in the next couple of years, right. sort of working on that one, but we'll see how it goes. It's kind of like, yeah, a bit nervous that it won't be Quite as right I remember yeah. it. Um, but hopefully some of it will still be, yeah, I have a, a colleague of mine works there and he s- says to me, and this is a guy who's worked all over the world. He says this it's still the best place in the world to scuba dive. So I think it's still all right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so w- what was your childhood like then? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty amazing childhood. Um, we, uh, is there we, a big Australian population there? So yeah. there's, there's what you'd call an expatriate population. So the town we lived in, I think it was about 10%. But that's not just, there were a lot of, of that 10% expatriates, there was quite a few Australians, but they were also people from all over the world. So there was a lot of Filipinos, like my mates at school were Filipino, Indian, you know, British, New Zealand, uh, some even from uh, Nigeria were there, for, okay. strangely. like So there's a real mix. So I went to an international school that also had um, local people there as well. But yeah, I mean, sort of very adventurous and free childhood growing up. I can remember even at age 14, a couple of mates and I just caught what was called a village boat. So it's these, so there's very few roads in New Guinea. So Uh you either fly or you get boats basically. So this was one of these, these sort of clapped out boats that went up and down the coast there, you know, took people to villages over several days. Just like a bus. Yeah, like a bus, but, but you know, it was a boat. And so, yeah, we went off for three days at 14 years old with a little bit of camping gear and some snorkeling gear and fishing gear and just went off on this sort of adventure. You know, staying in villages, no no roads, no electricity, mm. obviously no phones or internet sure. or any of that stuff. You know, and I just think, gosh, wow, I'd never <laughs> let my kids do yeah. that now. You're not the first person to say something um, like that. The, the past so, seemed a little freer, I think. Yeah, but we, I mean, I, I'm still in touch with those friends and we, we still reminisce about that particular trip. You know, it's incredible. But we did loads of stuff like that. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I was really into fishing and diving. And were you like spear fishing and just catching? And uh, fishing? Mostly line fishing. Okay. Yeah, in those days. Um, do you still fish now? Like how, I do. Yeah. yeah or does yeah. it seem like a busman's holiday? No, I love fishing. I think it's um, it's both because it's an excuse to be on on the, in the ocean, but mm. also I like seafood, and you know my son's into fishing as well. I'm not very good at it, <laughs> which is funny. Yeah, I was fishing off the coast of um, California about a year ago now, I guess it was. Right. And I'd been out for half a day, hadn't caught a thing. Yeah. And the guy who was on the boat just said, looked around a bit and pointed over there and said, take off your bait and just chuck it in over there and you'll probably catch something. And right. And just did. And it's amazing yeah. watching fishermen who know what to look for, where they Absolutely. are, what they've seen. It's There's a sort of magic and mystery to it. Yeah, you can really learn the condition, you know, about the water and... And the way to the catch habitat, them, what, what exactly they like. the skill. It's, it is quite a skill, and like you say, something that you learn is over it, time with experience. I've been talking to a namesake of mine, another David Oakes, who's oh, yeah. um, uh, a, a scallop diver up uh, on the Isle of Skye. Right. He, he double dives them, so he replaces them and then sort of does that. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so hopefully I'm going to get up there to talk to him about... I was, I was just there two weeks ago, so yeah, cool. Well, next time you're up, look out for my namesake. Go and yeah. see David Oakes. Um, so uh, what, where did you go to university? You did a, a zoology degree? I yeah, think? so I went. I stayed in Melbourne. So eventually when I was 17, we moved back um, to Australia. Papua New Guinea, if, if you haven't heard, is not the safest place in the world these days. Mm. And it was getting that way, sadly, when we were there. So, you know, mum and dad decided to move back. So then I went to... I did my undergraduate degree at Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And then I... I sort of wasn't ready for a PhD or whatever, and I was very lucky. Well, first of all, I was like, right, I want to travel. Mm-hmm. And I traveled, luckily, around the world a bit with my parents and stuff already. So I then spent a year traveling around Australia with a few mates, you know, um, full drive and camping. And we did quite a bit of marine biology volunteer work for okay. different organizations on the way organizations that are still around now or? yeah like just universities and scientists okay. and stuff we, we wrote to them and said like we're going to be in you know we're going to be at ningaloo reef like in july have sure. you got any work we can help with and yeah we got three or four projects out of that so as a young sort of just graduated student it was really it was a hell of a lot of fun but also uh-huh. good for the cv and making contacts yeah, yeah. Well, looking at your CV, there's so many sort of like a, a couple of months there, a year here. There was something right. on, on the site that you worked for the Institute of Fish Size or something. You were like the oh. acting manager. Of, oh, right. It had, it had the most amazing type of an organisation. Yeah, the Central Fish Ageing Laboratory. That was it. <laughs> I was we, like... didn't, we didn't age fish. Um, <laughs> no, that was... Uh, so, yeah, then when I came back, I did a master's degree or equivalent back in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And then I had this job for a couple of years near Melbourne, a place called Queenscliff, a lovely place to live, and I was like a junior scientist. Yeah, my main job there was fish ageing, which is not making fish older, but it's working working out how old they are. are. Cutting them open and counting the rings. Exactly. So we particularly worked on deep-sea fish, and and our group was one of the first ones to sort of discover that they how long they lived. So things like Orange Ruffy and the Oreos, 150 years plus. Wow. Um, So, so amazing that People didn't believe us at first, um, but, you know, the science sort of stacked up and now it's well accepted. I mean, could all fish live that long? Is it just, or is it because they're not f- uh, fished down there? Like It's, uh, no, not all fish could live that long. So this is something unique about the biology of deep sea fish. 
you tend to find there's a lot of variation, but this relationship between longevity and depth. Uh -huh. So the deeper sea fish live for the longest. Is that to do with the temperature? Yeah, so basically their metabolism is just really slow. Okay. You know, they're living at sort of in this fairly constant environment that's maybe two or three degrees. Um, there's there's not a lot of energy down there. You know, there's not much food. So mm. everything's slow. Everything's on slow motion, and including their lives. And so they don't get to sort of age maturity, maybe 25 sometimes, some, mm -hmm. of, the, some of these things like orange ruffy. And then they'll just live, yeah, for over 100 years. Um, whereas... You know, there's there's a whole variety of different lifestyles in fish and in marine life. So mm -hmm. you'll have something like, you know, an anchovy that maybe lives for a year or so. And then you'll have other things in the middle, like a grouper that might live for 40 or 50 years. Do they? Do you find that they live in different strata of the ocean? Is they, it like different countries, like the first layer, the second layer? Yeah, like I say, it tends to be related to depth and, and sort of their habitat. So a lot of the so-called pelagic fish like the things like the, the mackerels and the anchovies and mm. um, pilchards and all that stuff, pretty fast-growing, fast-lived, mm -hmm. very reproductive and active. So you see huge schools of them, but then they they can be, you know, there one day and gone the next yeah. sort of thing. Things in the middle are like, you know, obviously you have tuna and marlin and stuff, which is pelagic, but they will obviously, they'll live a lot longer because they're predators. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, generally then as you tend to move down in depth... You know, something like a cod or haddock might live for 20 or 30 years if it's not fished. Okay. And then on it goes until you get to the deep sea where you have this really long-lived stuff. Or like the I'm imagining like angelfish with the big teeth and the dangling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one of the most famous discoveries of recent years was Greenland sharks, which, again, don't so much live in the depths, but they live in this very cold environment. Mm. And... and it's thought they could possibly live up to 500 years old. Wow. So it's just crazy, you know. Think think about what was going on. The more I learn about sharks, the more I'm absolutely stunned. Yeah. I mean, I was reading your article that you re released recently about whale sharks and oh, yeah, how yeah, they yeah, yeah. You think, seem to think they come up, come up to breed onto these sort of shelf areas yeah. and then sort of disappear off. And, and are there many other species that sort of have such sort of... go to deliberate different depths to do different things? Yeah, I mean, sh sharks are pretty amazing. Like the, you know, like it's that goblin shark whose jaw sort of comes out and grabs things <laughs> yeah. and takes things. Out. Yeah, they are extraordinary animals. Uh, you know, great white sharks will undergo long migrations as well. The whale sharks, you know, this is a, the biggest fish in the sea, but we still don't know so much about it. Uh -huh. But there was one record recently of of a whale shark swimming right across the Pacific Ocean. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, and, you know, we know about there's like about 20 places in the world where whale sharks aggregate. Uh -huh. But they're, they're in these aggregation sites, almost all of them, they're all males. And so and they're all kind of they're not they're not they're like teenagers. So they're like maybe four or five meters long. Most uh -huh. of them whale shark can get even twice that size, potentially whale shark birth has never been seen. And even pregnant whale sharks are very, very rare. There's only two places where they know. One's the Galapagos, mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is um, St. Helena in the, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, this is out of the whole world. Like, yeah. They can't just breed in those two places, but maybe they do. Is this why you become a marine biologist? Because, you know, there's so much left undiscovered, you're never going to be yeah, pushed out of a job. <laughs> absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, for me, obviously, I was lucky enough to have that upbringing in in Australia and then Papua New Guinea. And so I got to see this stuff. But uh -huh. you're right. When you're, 
when you're diving, like you, you know, you're looking down into the depths, and you can always just see something further down, mm-hmm. and you know you can't go and look at it because you probably die if you yeah. do. But you're wondering all the time, and and how you, deep have you been? Have you been down in a submersible? I unfortunately not. No, diving I've been to about forty-five meters. Mm-hmm. So what's that like? One hundred and thirty odd feet, something like that. Deep enough, you feel like you're pretty far under. Yeah. Um, Dark and cold. And yeah, yeah. You start but to wonder I've, if you can get up in time. I've just got a. Um, just this year, we've got a, an ROV, so it's a remotely operated underwater vehicle, uh-huh. um, and um, that will go down to about fifty. <laughs> to 60 meters so almost 200 feet so we just got that this year we've been playing around with that it's pretty exciting like uh, it has a live feed up to the boat so you, it feels like you're playing a computer game okay. you know, you lo- and you have a controller like a playstation well, i was reading that even american submarines they use a reconstructed sony playstation controller yeah because that not only are they really good at controlling mm-hmm. things and quite straightforward but also all the people that are training to be submarine controllers well, exactly already know how to use them so yeah yeah so i mean i i wasn't so good to be honest <laughs> i mean i drove a little bit but also crashed into the well, it's sea because bed. you made the mistake of having used it was actually outside <laughs> and doing things as opposed to glued to a screen but i i'm Telling my teenage son he needs to come along as a, as our driver basically because he'll okay. be fine, but um yeah yeah I mean it's it, it's pretty cool but like you say you know I would love one day to go in a, in a submersible and go much deeper I mean that would be amazing. Do you have a favourite fish? Ooh, I think for me it would be a marlin. Uh-huh. Um, this is a long old sort of point. Yeah, with the big, big bill. Yeah, I just think I was lucky enough to see them um, in Papua New Guinea and. They are just like the most majestic fish you can imagine, you know, and they, yeah, they're like the king of the ocean, basically. You know, they travel these amazing distances. Uh, They look spectacular and, you know, nothing can touch them, really, apart from fishermen, sadly, Mm. but nothing much else. Are they Uh, aggressive? No, I mean, they wouldn't be aggressive to people. Like, you could quite safely swim with one. Uh Um there's been cases where they've jumped into a boat or speared someone, but it's mm. because they're trying to catch them. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's fair enough. Um, no, you wouldn't have any worries. If you, I mean, and people have Blue Planet, you know, there's a bit of footage with, with Marlins underwater. Mm. So you're exploring around um, Australia and your gap year, you're doing bits and bobs. Yeah, yeah. At what point do you decide to go and do a PhD? Yeah, so I went back, as I said, I, I, I actually went back from that and did my master's and then... You, did you special? So your sorry, your your first degree was in zoology, but you were specialising. I was starting in marine. to specialise in marine as much as I could. So I was choosing like my my research project was on fish, and you know I was trying to specialise a bit more. I wanted to specialise from the start, but mm. I was sort of told to be sensible and like, sure. oh, you'll never get a job as a marine biologist. Like do do at least a zoology degree where mm-hmm. you might work on different things, uh, which is good advice actually in retrospect. But I was lucky enough to. To end up. So, yeah, so I did that. I came back, did my master's, then I had this job, the aging laboratory. Okay, sure. And I think as much as I enjoyed that, I really hankered to get back to the coral reefs. So that work was down in around Melbourne, southern Australia. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I guess I from my time in Papua New Guinea, you know, I just love coral reefs. And so I thought, okay, I want to do a PhD. I want to – because it does – it is a bit of a ticket to allow you to do – more stuff you know and you get more respected so i thought okay if i'm going to do that i want to do it on coral reefs you know that's the dream and yeah i was lucky enough to get a place 
So my PhD was um, at James Cook University in, in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, all my field work was at Lizard Island. So this is very uh, north and Great Barrier Reef. It's, it's sort of famous. So up past Cairns a bit. Yeah, yeah. past Cairns. It's, uh, probably to Europeans it's famous because it's where Captain Cook um, yeah. sort of Cook landed. University. He named it um, Lizard Island because it's covered in these massive lizards. Mm-hmm. And he also climbed to the top of it and he could see the way out through the reef and that's how he eventually sort of escaped the great barrier reef and got home but yes amazing place um i did 10 trips there of sort of a a month or more um so almost a year out on the barrier reef i I think i did something like 500 scuba dives you know i was practically living under the water Uh, that was very cool yeah have you ever had a scary dive? Has anything ever gone? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely had a had a scary dive. I've I've got the bends, which has uh, not been great. Okay. Uh, Understatement. There. Yeah, so, so that was not good. Um, that was just down to a equipment malfunction. Sure. Um, I think probably that just happens, and then you're like, right, I got to deal with this. You know, <laughs> get in the chamber. Basically, mm-hmm. the scariest one I think I ever had was when. We got caught in the current, sure. and I was with somebody else, fortunately, but as you should be. Uh, and we came up, and the boat was um, about a hundred meters away. Very strong current. We couldn't swim against her, and the boat was not coming to get us, despite all the waving and shouting and whatever. Um, and we we just ended up getting further and further away. This is off um, Jarvis Bay, in New South Wales, quite a sort of exposed oceanic place we were. Mm-hmm. And after sort of about half an hour, my mate and I were like, we're just going to have to swim back to shore. And the problem was the shore was 100 meter tall cliffs. Uh But we kind of knew enough of the coast that we knew about sort of maybe four or five miles down the coast, there was a bay where we could get in. Uh And so that's what we started to do. And we started to swim it would have been, it was going to take us, we reckon, the whole day at least. We so hoped you're to get, lying on your back. Just yeah, just kicking. In. And we'd been swimming for about an hour. And then the boat came and got us. And uh, the, basically the boat had seen us, but he, they couldn't start the engine. <laughs> and we didn't know this. Yeah. And so, you know, we just gave up. And so I was kind of, it was definitely very scary. But at the same time, I was quite. You knew what of, you needed to do. We we assessed the situation. We didn't panic, and yeah, we we did the right thing. Whether we would have made it or not, I don't know. It was a hell of a swim. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's going to take seven or eight hours. How far do you think you got in that hour? <sighs> not very far. It didn't feel like we'd barely moved at all. No. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> so that was intense, but it was a good ending. So PhD. Um, your yeah. subject was. So I I was interested in. Um, Predatory coral reef fish, so other fish that eat other fish, basically, uh-huh. and the relationship between them and what they eat. And so lots of people were interested in those days in sort of, when you swim on a coral reef, it's like there's all this amazing diversity of life, you know, all these abundant different types of fish. And they were very interested what allows that to occur? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that in some parts of the world you've got like just one or two types of fish and here you've got this amazing diversity and people used to study the small fish themselves that was the sort of approach and I said well I'm pretty sure that predation is really important so I want to study the predators instead Uh 
And so that's what I did. It was a bit of a different approach. And so I started off sort of assessing the entire community, which was challenging. So I had these regular sites I'd go to and I'd count literally all the species Mm -hmm. and look at the composition. But then I focused on a couple of species of grouper um, after that and really studied those in detail. So I, this was a lot of fun, actually. I used to I used to fish for them underwater, mm-hmm. so I because they had very discrete territories. So I these these group were not big fish; they're about sort of um, thirty centimeters long, mm-hmm. um, and take down this little fishing rod, which was a pole and a bit of line, mm-hmm. and I'd catch them and I'd tag them, and then I'd put them back in their territories, and then I would basically be able to monitor their movements. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the other interesting things was when I caught them. Now, this sounds a bit gross, but they used to vomit what they'd just eaten. Okay. And I collected that so I could get a really good you're idea. you're still underwater for all of this? Yeah, yeah. Well, the vomit I used to collect, I used to get that on the boat. But I used to bring them up to the boat to okay, tag, tag them, them and then collect their up, vomit yeah. and then swim them back and put them back in their place. And um, these fish were really interesting. They have a haremic system. So there's one dominant male tends to have uh, about four or five females in its territory. Mm-hmm. Anything happens to that male, then the the next biggest female becomes the male. Sure. Um, so these fish are really interesting, but I guess from that bigger question, what what emerged was that they feed in very particular ways and they have preferences for some species over others and they can catch some species more than others. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of like these, um, you know, lots of field observations, 700 hours underwater, but also experiments back in the laboratory as well. So I sort of recreated these mini quarries like swimming in swimming pools. Is it mostly just you on your own doing this? You just sort of go... Um, I, I generally had had a diver with me, like because yeah. of the you rules. And... Uh, it was normally a, a, a younger student okay. who wanted the experience. Um, so there we were working from a research station. So we had, you know, we had a bit of backup, but it was, yeah, you know, you're pretty much just coming up with your own ideas. And Now that you're looking after students yourself, what do you, like, knowing how you sort of got to where you got to, how yeah. do you try and inspire them? What do you tell them? What's the most important thing you tell your students? I think the most important thing is to work on something that you're passionate about, like find what that is, work that out. And be able and to then... eat them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not necessarily, but and then just to embrace that. But I think one of the other things that I learned as a student as well was to trust my own ideas and uh-huh. instincts. Because generally, if you're the one studying something, you actually know more about it than ever, ever anyone else. Sure. So I, I remember getting some results about a year into my PhD, and I was like totally disheartened because they showed the opposite to what everyone else had found. Mm-hmm. And I went to my supervisor. I was like, you know, this. What are we going to do? Like, my results are all wrong. And he, st- I had a really good supervisor, Jeff Jones, and he just looks at this for a bit, and he goes, he said, "No, these are not wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. You're right." Okay. He said, "All those other experiments and studies were artificial." He said, "You've done this in the wild. Uh-huh. You're seeing the real story here." And it was like, "Oh yeah, I am." Like, I'm the one who's got this right. And I think, you know, I was tempted to throw everything away. Uh And actually, no, I needed to just trust my observations, trust my my instincts. And I think that's, you know, very important for anyone in any walk of life, really. 
Um, what was it that brought you over to here? Was it this job particularly or? Yeah, so I moved here in uh, 20 years ago and I had the job working on the scallop fisheries in the Isle of Man mm. and then it really just sort of took off from there. So um, I worked there for six years. I worked for an environmental um, charity, the Marine Conservation Society, for a couple of years, which mm. was very interesting. Different way of of doing things, not so much hands-on science, but They're the that's the brand, you see the MCS on or fish branding is that yeah, yeah. Uh, well no so there's so there's MSC oh, okay. Marine Stewardship Council there's, there's some dyslexia coming uh, out. no no everyone falls for this um, and then there's the MCS which is the Marine Conservation Society okay. who also work on seafood sustainability so they have like this fish to eat and fish to avoid list yeah. and stuff um, so that was one of my jobs. But so yeah, working for an NGO was really interesting because they they have access to like ministers and celebrities and you know, they have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly like I was thrown in the deep end. On the second day in the job I went up to Westminster to meet the fisheries minister. You know, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um and I realized that from that that NGOs need good information, you know. And so then when I moved into this job, I thought, okay, now I'm in a position where I can continue to do research and supply evidence. And feed the NGOs. I want to feed them with this sort of information to make sure they're they're using the right stuff, yeah. basically. They've got their celebrity to bully the politician to do the right exactly. thing. Exactly, yeah. So who do you work with now, NGO-wise? Who are your... So, main... yeah, I mean, I work. I do still work with Marine Conservation Society, Um Particularly in Scotland, I was talking earlier about Lamlash Bay. So the, there's a small NGO, but a very well-known called Coast, so Community of Aran mm-hmm. Seabed Trust, um, and work closely with them. But really, um, anyone else who sort of asks for advice, you know. So the last few years, I've been doing a lot of work on Brexit, and uh, everyone knows wants to know what's going on with Brexit. Well, should we do it then? Yeah. What's going on with Brexit? <laughs> well, I don't really know. <laughs> Does uh, anybody who, know? Who, if anyone it says tells you they think they know, they're yeah. a liar, basically. But um, yeah, I mean, my my interest obviously has been in fisheries and Brexit. I was asked actually six months before the referendum. A colleague here said to me, "Oh, no one's really thinking about the environmental implications of Brexit. Mm-hmm. What it might mean." And she said, you know, do you want to, like, let's do a project on it. And I was like, oh, no, it's too complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not interested. Anyway, she bugged me a bit, and I eventually agreed to join in. And so we did this this big report. There's lots of uh, 15 academics involved that came out in March 2016, so before the referendum, all about the different environmental implications. And I was working on fisheries. Mm-hmm. And obviously... At that time, there were there were these campaigns that culminated in the flotilla on the Thames, like you know, taking oh, back remember. control. Geldof was there. Yeah, Geldof yeah. and and Farage like yelling at each other. Yeah, no one's finest moment, I don't think. Not really, and um, you know, there was this idea among among the sort of Brexit campaign that we could just, you know, shut off the British waters, kick all the other boats out, and do whatever we like. And and you know, I was sort of saying, guys, it's not going to happen. You're talking about shared fish stocks. Like mm. the fish don't know where the borders are. You know, I mean, a classic example is something like place or sole that breeds off the coast of France. Mm-hmm. 
the the eggs hatch the young sort of have a nursery area nearby then as they grow up they move off into the north sea and around the coast to britain well you know well, they're born in France. Yeah. They're French. Fish. French place. Oh no, but they've got they've got permanent residency in in Britain. You know, they're British. Well, and I've got dual nationality. I know. Well, let's give them an EU passport. You know, basically that's what they they're European. Yeah. And so, and this is the case with about a hundred different fish stocks. Mm. You know, shared like this. And so, whatever happens, we're going to have to continue to share the management. And that means, obviously, a degree of sharing the catches as well, mm-hmm. working out a system that is fairer, fairer than what it is now. Like, I take the point of the industry that the current system is not great for Britain. Like, actually, there's a number of species where they get a, a smaller share than they really should. Uh-huh. Um because things have changed since the system was set up. Like, As in terms of fish populations and sizes? or so, so European fisheries are mostly managed with quotas. So it's just like you're allowed to catch X number of tonnes per year. That overall quota is based, or at least should be based on scientific advice. Uh-huh. But um, the amount that different countries are allocated is based on this European rule called relative stability. So back in the... In the 1970s, they looked at what the different nations were catching and they came up with this sort of key, this relative stability key. And they said, for example, cod in the North Sea, Britain, you can have 40%. Uh, France, you can have 20 Netherlands, you can have whatever. Uh-huh. And so then that's it. It doesn't change that percentage. Now, the North Sea is not too bad, but some places like off the southwest of the UK, uh-huh. Britain's got like... I, don't, I think it's like 10% of the habit quota uh-huh. because when that when those rules were drawn up, no one in Britain was fishing for haddock, haddock down there. Sure. But now it's all different. Now it's and and, and we've got climate change that's moved the fish around as well. So could so, you could – you, I mean, I guess any redistribution of those quotas will just anger any local fisherman who has based their entire life upon it. That's and those nomadic people come down and they don't really care because they can move wherever well, they yeah, want Well, yeah, yeah. So, so – at the as things stand, you've got this situation where, you know, the UK wants to massively increase its, its quotas for a lot of species. You've got the European nations saying, no way, mm-hmm. like we don't want to change anything. And they're saying, if you do, we'll make trade very difficult. Uh-huh. Now, that's the really key ingredient because about two-thirds of all the fish that's caught around the UK is exported to Europe. And that's our biggest, most important market. It's not just important because it's, well, partly because it's nearby. Mm -hmm. It means the fish is very fresh when it gets there. And with shellfish, crabs and lobsters, prawns, they're often still alive. Uh So you need quick, frictionless trade. Otherwise, yeah. Otherwise it it goes off, you know, and it's worth nothing. You possibly can't sell it at all. And so, you know, I mean, the, the French have been saying, look, if you try and, you know, kick us out of your, out of your waters or if you we'll complicate take all the quota, yeah, across. it will make, and they could very easily do that. So I, I guess my question is, if you were the king of the seas yeah. and were in charge of working out what to do, what, what rule or set of regulations would you, okay, you've got one, you've got one regulation, what would you put onto fishing, not necessarily within the EU and England, but what, what do you think could solve the seas 
and having that balance. I've only got one. Okay, great, great. Um, I'd say follow the science. That's the the golden rule. Uh But it has to be good science. So, you know, yeah, sometimes science is... Fishery science, there's lots of interesting quotes out there. You know, it's not rocket science. It's much more complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one I like is is counting fish is like um, counting trees in the forest, except the trees are invisible and they keep moving around. (laughs) You know, it's... (laughs) It's not easy. So fisheries science, you've always got to allow for that uncertainty. Uh Um, But that generally means being more cautionary than being overly optimistic and saying, oh, well, if I get it wrong, if I don't take, you know, if I could have taken more fish out this year, well, that's okay because they'll still be there next year. Uh You know, whereas if I take too many out this year, then I've overfished. There might be none for the next generation. Exactly. So... Follow the science, but I think if I'm allowed another one, it was it's just collaboration, really. And that's fishermen and scientists working together, countries working together, you know, getting all the stakeholders involved. It's not easy, but there's lots of good people out there, processes about conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. And I think from the point of view of the stakeholders, being open-minded and accepting that you can't have everything you want. Yeah. But you've got to try and strike a balance. And that is, yeah, that's the solution. Brilliant. So there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes onto the podcast. Right. Uh, The first question is, if you could go for a walk or a swim anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Well, a swim and a walk, probably I'd I'd probably do both, would be uh, Bora Bora in French Polynesia, somewhere I dream of going. Have you never been? I've never been. It just looks amazing. Uh, my partner and I have it on our long-term goals. Uh, I think, yeah, next 10 years, absolutely, we're going to try and get there somehow. I've got Bora Bora and Sipadan sort of basically next door to each other okay. on my list of places I want yeah, to go yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, But just incredible. Yeah. Um, second question. I normally ask, should we colonise the moon? But for you, I'm going to ask, should we colonise the seas? Whew, that's an interesting one. Um I think we could colonize the seas to a degree, but I don't know what we'd really get out of it. Like, you know, yes, you could build underwater cities. The technology is there now, I imagine. But my preference would be no, Mm -hmm. of course. You know, we've already, in most places, overused the seas. And there's always this drive to keep pushing and developing and changing. You know, there's so few places left in the ocean that are relatively pristine, relatively untouched. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky enough to have seen some of them, and they are extraordinary places, and I think they should be kept for eternity, if that's at all possible. Well, they've just protected the moon landing site as a, a national park or something ridiculous. Oh, right. Do you think we should have more completely isolated, protected areas in the ocean? Yeah, that's actually something that's happening. So, um, I mean, there has been a big drive globally to increase the level of marine protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that is both, well, it's it's good that they're doing this, but they're protecting now some of these remote islands, like so Ascension Island, for mm-hmm. example. I think they're making most of it a marine protected area now, fully protected pretty much. Um, some of the other places, like Chagos is another one that's very highly protected. So these these few remote and relatively pristine places, and that's good, you know, absolutely. Chagos is a bit complicated politically, okay. but, you know, that the principle anyway. Sure. 
But what we need to do is also just not ignore closer to home as well. You know, and don't say, oh, well, we've protected, you know, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. So, therefore, we've met our percentage targets and we don't need to worry about what's I was going talking on to here. the CEO of the Devon Wildlife Trust and he was saying that we've got two massive coastlines and in terms of wildlife preservation, they're equally as valuable as what we've got on land, if not more. Yeah, so. and I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, there's uh, an underappreciation of, of British marine life and what's under the seas here, and it is actually incredible. And, I, and I'm saying that as somebody who grew up in Papua New Guinea and mm-hmm. has seen some amazing places. But you can see stuff here that's just as incredible as anywhere in the world. You just have to put in a dry suit, It's just a bit colder and <laughs> not quite as clear, yeah. yeah. But it is incredible. Uh, and so we need to protect that for, you know, I mean, it's cliched, but for now and for the future generations. Because if we don't, these places, they get changed and sometimes often they can not ever go back to what mm-hmm. they were. Which brings me neatly onto my final question, which is if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I think as a as an Aussie, I'd have to say the Tasmanian tiger, uh, just because just the little bit I've seen from the old footage mm-hmm. and, and the reconstructions and things, it just looks like an incredible creature. Amazing, isn't it? You know, just different from anything that exists these days. It's the stripes at the back and then that sort of and that, almost sort that, of mole-like nose. That yeah, that big... And then this this mouth that apparently could sort of open up mm-hmm. like 180 degrees or something, you know, just a very cool creature. Uh, tragic that we've lost it. Yeah, and so recently. Yeah. Um that's fantastic, Bryce. That's absolutely brilliant. If people want to know more about you, they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. It's uh, BD underscore Stew. And if they want to enrol at York University, <laughs> they can do a course here, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, we. Uh, I'm a program leader for a BSc in environmental science, and I also am one of the main lecturers on an MSc in marine environmental management. Brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. That's absolute fantastic. pleasure. Cheers, David. And that was Dr. Bryce Stewart. As someone who has always been fascinated by fish and by the sea, I cannot thank him enough for sharing some of what seems like a bottomless source of fish joy. You'll be pleased to know that Bryce is still very heavily involved in making our post-Brexit fishy future great for us, great for people who live off the sea, and especially great for the creatures who live deep within it. In other news, we've just announced that Trees of Crowd will be recording another live episode This time it will be at the inaugural London Climate Change Festival on the 26th of March with Ed Davey of the Food and Land Use Coalition. Head to treesacrowd.fm for my blog and for further information on that upcoming live recording. We will be back in a fortnight with a massive interview, so keep an ear open for that one. Thank you very much for listening and bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh